welcome to another powerful message from One Life OK. We really hope you enjoy it. I um, was talking with the mentors on Friday night, and so for all of you who want some continuing education, I know everyone doesn't, but it's okay. I'll keep providing it. But they have some cool things to go over with you, but one of them was this little slide by Dr. Margaret. She said, to realize wholeness, can you follow the line? To realize, and we go over here, wholeness, we renounce the ways we live in lack because wholeness is never conditional. It's kind of a deep statement, maybe for some. But I love that little line she put there. I just went ahead and put that on there so it could explain it to you. Can you read that? It's nice. Lack is a mindset that we will that will never. And don't you like the never word? Because this means that if you don't get rid of the lack mindset, you'll never just fill in the blank, right? It will never lead us to wholeness because it makes the fulfillment of our deepest heart's desires conditional. If blank, then I will be whole. Here's a great one to put in there. If I find a husband or wife, then I'll be whole. Talk to a couple married people and they can assure you (laughs) this is not the purpose of marriage. You know, whenever Renee Zellweger and Tom Cruise and he said, you complete me, it's not possible. That was a lie and you got hoodwinked. How many got their, no. Then, so we have to make some changes to our mindset. This is just a commercial, okay? This is all this is. I'm not preaching this. We have to change. See, every way that I believe that isn't from God will reproduce after it's like kind, not like God. Every mindset, let me say it another way. Every mindset that I do not change, that I believe, that I have partnered with in agreement, that I do not allow someone or allow him. Did you know that him sometimes is them? Sometimes people are speaking to you what's from him, but you think it's just from them. So if we don't change some mindsets, we won't change behaviors. So that means we're doing the definition of insanity. We're doing the same thing over and over and over again, hoping that it will eventually reproduce some other result and it's never going to happen. Got it? So it says with when a lack mindset makes wholeness conditional, we get stuck in longing. Now, I went into great detail about this on Friday night, so if you want to know more about it, you're going, this is just a commercial. This is a commercial for you to get mentoring on a deep level. Don't have to. It's optional. Longing is not a destination. Have you ever got stuck there? Just longing for something you can never make it happen. You're probably longing for the wrong thing. That's why it's not happening. Because all the things of God that we long for, He makes happen. He actually provides for it. 
clearly, if it's not happening in your life, I always say five years is a good marker. I would go with five weeks, but that makes you nervous, I know. If it's not happening in that length of time, change. Change the goal. You're in, you're stuck. You're stuck. And you're in lack. And you keep trying to make abundance out of lack. Anyway, that's good enough for that commercial, isn't it? There's a whole thing on it, so just feel free to, yeah, look at that anytime. So, I don't know what the title title is going to be today yet. However, I woke up yesterday morning and the Holy Spirit asked me this question. He said, is your wick salty? And I thought, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if I know the answer to that. So I've spent, actually it's Friday morning, because I've spent the last two days looking up stuff about is my wick salty. And now I probably am not going to get to preach on that even yet. So, but let's start out with some definitions. This has nothing to do probably with your wick is salty, but maybe I'll know the answer to that question as I keep talking. I really know. I was just playing with y'all. So Sarah B., she said this. She's in the house today. Do y'all know who Sarah B. is? Oh, that's, I don't, yeah, don't do that one yet. Um, She said this. She said, God's emotion has motion. That's Sarah B. right there, if you didn't know. Y'all thought it was some other, y'all thought we had a new Sarah, didn't you? God's emotion has motion. Don't you love that God is emotional? Don't you love that he gave you emotions? You know, Pam talked a lot about what's in charge last week. That soul, you know, is is a, he's a booger sometimes. <laughs> but you know, I was thinking today that maybe sometimes the thing that we just keep telling ourselves, stop it, is actually a signpost. Okay, that was too hard to understand. So let's go down. Let's let's read some definitions. I'm going to tell you more about that. My first definition I have for you today is success. The definition of success is doing everything God's way. So see, anything else you have in there, you got it? Anything else you have in there that is your definition of success whether it be a 401k, a retirement, or a big house, big car, stuff, or a relationship, all of that is not success in God's eyes. We need to exchange the need for significance for a need to be faithful and obedient. See, what we have to remember is that that once that we come in through the door of salvation, the need for salvation is satisfied, right? So I don't have to, like I, I was raised where we got saved every week, but that's all we did. We just kept getting saved. We didn't know there was this whole life to live, right? And so... If I change my definition of success, then I have to change the definition of my needs. 
And so then I, I, I then changed to become significant to the one. Not to the multiple, right? To the one. And, and because we owe him everything. Because we owe him everything. See, everything he did was for his love of humanity. Like he made earth to make people in his likeness. We're like God. That's a cool gig, isn't it? To then engage in something after salvation that I call a process. Now you can put that one up there. So here's a little slide from my next definition. I made a whole slide for my next definition. Isn't that cool? The title of this slide is, punch that button, from seed to fruit. Now, I don't know where Mendel is, but we, we didn't talk about anything much yesterday. But when I, right before songwriting, I was like, hey, did you think of anything today? And she's like, well, I was thinking about seeds. And I found this word I wrote about seeds, and I was like, pretty cool, because I didn't tell her. And so this is what, this is the believer's mandate, which is, it's going to, it's at the end of the slide, but it's, it's coming, the mandate from God is coming. But here's part of what happens about fruit. Fruit is the mandate. But fruit isn't the first step. Right? So I put down a few stages of your process. You can punch that button again. Look at there. Here it comes. Number one is God plants a seed in your life. How does he do that? A lot of times he does it through a prophetic word. And what's really cool about that is that's all that is right there at that point. There's an anointing. Well, I'm skipping ahead. Let's keep going. Number two, God works on roots first. Why? And where are they? They're in secret. They're in secret. What we do is we get impatient with roots, right? Because we didn't give up our definition of success yet. This is why they're connected. So then I'm pushing God to make me more successful than my roots are deep. And I become impatient and even mad at God. You know, my favorite thing about God that has been happening, I've been hearing it a lot lately, is God's not linear. What is? I'm not linear either. Right, Mendel? Yeah. So linear people are A, B, C, D, one, two, three. And God's not that way. God's like one, Z, 24, A slash B. He's all, why? He's not, why? Because it's my yielding to the process that produces the next stepping stone. The stepping stones are already all laid out. The, st- the stepping stones are already all laid out. But I can move forward. I can move backwards. I can stand still. And see, the cool part is that think of yourself as like you're on one of those things with, with one of those 
lightsabers and, and someone's trying to knock you off your post. And see, what he does is he'll bring offense. He'll bring comparison. Oh, that's my next definition. Hang on, we're still on roots. Number three, roots are developed in God's spiritual family of choice. For you, through you, learning to serve. That's the way that roots are developed, is you learn to serve in the family of God that God placed you in that wants your spiritual growth to be consistently challenged and, and nurtured and developed, right? We don't get to randomly just pick, oh, I think I'll just pick social media, and that's where I'll develop my roots. See, that's, that's, the, that's the hook of social media. It's being used for something to promote your need for significance. You can use social media for something else, but if you're using it for that, then you'll never grow roots because you'll act like you're something that you're not. Number four, roots are needed to bear fruit clearly, right? Number five, God is not Amazon now. <laughs> Do you know what that is? What Amazon now is? In some cities they have it where you can just call them up on your local laptop. You can just order something and it'll be there in an hour. We don't have that here yet. I'm sure we will soon. That's not God. That's the problem is, you know, we... We have these phones and like, have you ever like had a slow internet? And you're like thinking, my gosh, what in the world is wrong with my phone? I mean, like it's taking three seconds to look up a number. That's the society that you, God's not in that. God don't care if it takes 30 years to do a three-year ministry. Because, see, he predestined a purpose for you to fulfill on earth, and it, it, it probably wasn't, I don't know too many people in this room that that was presented to them early on in those formative years. So then you formative something else. And number six is already up there. Nope. Number six, roots are the most important growth you allow God to do in your life. That's all about fruit. This is every believer's mandate from God. This is my definition. Lots of fruit. Fruit that remains. Fruit that endures. Fruits that last forever. God is interested in developing roots first. What matters the most is the size of the foundation, the root system, the inner world. And nothing is grown first without an amazing root system. That's my definition of fruit. And that's the mandate. Bear fruit. God said it. He didn't say, only if you want. He said that if you know me, you're, you have entered into a process. We can call it journey. We can call it whatever. You, that's, that's what happened. I came to Jesus. I just stepped into a process. Now see, if you don't like that, you don't get that God made humanity that way. So you're actually not liking the whole way God set up for you to mature. And so you won't. You can't do anything without agreement. So my next definition is authority. 
An authority is a position of awareness or understanding of God's kingdom realm. Authority is kingdom, not worldly. The, this kingdom authority is meant to be used in the world to what? Transform culture, reform culture to look like kingdom, to bow to the authority of the king. I love this. It's not the same as anointing, but must be discovered through a process of it developing over a period or season of time. Here's an example. A prophetic word releases anointing to you that's needed for the word. So the moment you get a prophetic word, it comes with an anointing. Let's think about David, for for example. So when he was a teenager... Isn't it cool how God speaks to teenagers? Like every, that's when he spoke to me. He always does that. You may not remember it, but so he speaks. And so there's an anointing then, but that's not the authority. The authority to do the word. And guess what? You can't even do the word without the authority. I don't know if y'all believe me. A prophetic word releases anointed to you needed for the word, but the authority for the word to be accomplished comes through developing and understanding and operating in our authority. So we think of David again. As a teenager, as a shepherd, he's anointed king. Where did he learn authority? When he was out killing the bear and the lion. What if we came out to the shepherd field and we were like, what are, you, are, you, are you being king yet? I mean, what are you doing out here? I mean, it, there's, there had to be something in him that said, and I'm sure, you know, Samuel was the man, right? He was the, he was the prophet of the day. It was a big deal for Samuel to come to your house. And remember, all the other brothers got presented first. That should give you plenty of rest. That even when people are trying to force other people into your position, God knows. Authority or this developmental process takes T-I-M-E. God works outside of time. So how you're watching the cal—I mean the calendar, C word, God's not. You know, you, uh, yeah, it's, it's developed and released through a process that we can cause to continue through motivation that we take part in, right? Or we can slow the development by resistance or like being in one month or year and being out the next. Have you had periods of times where you're like in, you're on fire, and then you thought this fiery season is going to produce this thing that I have in my mind, and then when week, month, year goes by and it didn't produce it, then you thought, well, this fiery thing's not it. I must need to change. You're just in a process. And see, when we hate on the process, listen, I can tell you 40 years of process. Do you know I could be literally on staff right now at churches that are thousands of people? It can't be about quantity. 
When anointing and authority finally collide, that's when you move into your destiny, into kingdom living in its fullest. Embracing this process makes you thrive in the process. Resisting this process delays everything. And you're miserable the whole time. What if I told you at 71 years old, you were going to step into a two-month amazing ministry and then you would die? But you are going to train for 70 years. See, what happened to us, we said, well, a couple months. I mean, like, let me just get some training here, like, you know, a month, two, maybe maybe a couple years. I'll go to like 10 different churches in my lifetime, and I'll wonder why I have no roots, and I'll be good. See, the problem is, is that God, the, the, the root development has to be so strong, and that's done inside. He's changing belief systems interiorly that you're not even sharing with anyone. That's what he did this morning. For whoever in here was ready, there was a hidden place in here. He hovered over, he breathed over, and he spoke life into it, and it's going to live in a new way. Now, you can be like, well, what's that going to look like? Hey, I don't know. It's going to look like freedom. Okay, I have, a, I have two more. Are you still enjoying this definition process? The next definition is process. I threw it around a little, so now. This is the one thing you have in common with every other human on the planet. Everybody that wants to do their destiny has to go through a godly process. Unavoidable. I love this. The question isn't, are you in process? The question is, how are you doing in it? See, that's the beautiful part, really, of this system, even of mentoring, is that it's supposed to reveal to you where you're not doing great in the process, not because someone wants to hate on you, but because they love you. Right? And so when... I allow more of my process to be seen than I allow more wisdom to be given. Because see, like, I don't even care. You're never, those of you who are older than me, you're never going to be older than me. I mean, it's just the reality. I want to give you seeds of wisdom that you don't even have to plant. I'll just walk along and scatter some out and you'll grab them or not. And then hopefully if you don't have to redo all of the wisdom I have, what would you look like with a double portion of wisdom? Then you'll have your wisdom. And see, that's why God sets up a spiritual family. He sets up a spiritual family. Hopefully whoever is leading the spiritual family has something in their bucket that you want. Hopefully they'll keep getting more in their bucket, so they'll just stay slightly ahead. It's the same way with mentoring. Hopefully if you if there's people in here who have chosen to be mentors, they they went through a hard knocks with Tisa. That's the truth. 
And so they're ready to what? To lay down their life for you to be more healthy. It's inconvenient to mentor. It doesn't mean we don't want to. It doesn't mean that we don't love to. It doesn't mean that our lives are given to. But it's just not the same as being selfish. It's not. It's not the same as just I've got all the time in the world in my hands and i got blunt, nothing else to do. It's not the same. And hopefully, as we continue to do that process, then mentors... Mentor, mentorees, and then mentorees become mentors. Do you know at one time I mentored 17 people in this room? I remember Pam came to me and she said, I'm feeling that thing with Moses like, hey, you might need, you know, and of course, and I had the monster mask that was clearly from mentoring, but I had the, (laughs) that was supposed to be funny. All you serious people, wake up. Anyway, that was a good transition for me because I couldn't do anything for a while. (laughs) Still on the definition of process, God designed it to be used to develop and mature you in life. It's a God design. The process, the journey, whatever you want to call it. Quit hating on it. You know what? It's never going to be different. Yield, lean, love, appreciate, be grateful. I thank him all the time that I am never going to be alone because I have made my life a life that has people in it. I had to make that. I could have done it all alone. So therefore, they get to see my process front and center. If you don't allow God to develop you through a process, then you will never get to the place where you have the authority to operate in your destiny and design. What are we doing this year? We're trying to apprehend our destiny. I am giving you all kinds of tools that will allow you to apprehend your destiny. You can say on March, yeah, I don't, I didn't want to do the March stuff. No, April, I don't know. That didn't sound good to me. Right? Or you can say, okay, well, I've got to really soak in on all these things that are being given because I've got to, they've got to develop me. Now, see, we're all at a different place in the process, which leads me to my next definition, comparison, but I'm not through with process yet. Hold on. God's plan doesn't change. It's still process. God's plan doesn't change just because I'm frustrated with where I'm at. You know, God is like, oh, <laughs> sorry like I didn't know it was gonna be so hard for you okay well let me rework that he's patient this is why he's patient because that will stay right there as a fixed point till you get it have you ever done it have you have you you ever been in a circle have you ever gotten out of the circle okay you're are you in another circle yes yes you are You'll have to get out of that one, just like you got out of the last one. Just to get into the new circle was hard enough. And then after a while, you're like, seen that? Seen that? Oh, been there. It takes you about 20 times a circling before you even realize 
This seems so familiar. You know, that's why, that's why I give you all these tools. If I give you a personality tool, it's because that's what your personality tends to do. Don't act like you're not choleric. You're probably coarse. You just are. Change the way you talk. If you're a sanguine, you probably don't remember anybody's names, and you can't keep track of time, and you leave your phone at home, and Teresa has to bring it to you, but that's okay. That you know, I was telling she the other day. She was like, "I just don't, I have a hard time giving myself grace." I said, "Well, but in the moment that you can't give yourself grace, then God has you do something that affects someone else, and then they give you the grace you can't give yourself." Oh. 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 So I. I was thinking about about comparison because I wrote in this definition, comparison done wrong will cause you to cut off this process. The reason why I wrote it that way was because I had read this definition from Dr. Margaret about comparison, and she said this, the brain has an innate drive to make social comparisons. So I had to change in that moment because I probably would have wrote comparison bad. Stop it. I probably would have wrote that. But instead, she was like, look at it. Why are you doing it? What is comparison doing to you? Since your brain was wired to do it, then it must have a different purpose from God than first thought. So comparison usually in the kingdom, I mean, in the religious world, It's what? It's like evil. Stop it. I'm sure I've said it. But when I thought about what she was saying, this is what she said. Comparison, it holds a magnifying glass to your insecurities. And you either compare and despair or you compare and change. So see, instead of just saying, stop it. Mentors, let's don't do that anymore. Instead of just saying, stop it. Let's just say, okay, wait for a minute. Let's just, I'm having an epiphany about this currently myself. Okay, so I'm trying to share with you my epiphany I'm in. Oh my gosh, if my brain is wired that way, and this is what she said. Social comparisons can create negative judgments or it can help you accurately evaluate yourself and inspire you to grow, work hard, change, create, dream. I can tell you, we do not know how to do this. We do not know how to do this. I have not taught you how to do this. I want to teach you how to do this. Because see, the thing of it is, is that we in the church as in general, we're so scared of anything that we think might be sin. We never even understand if there's actually something from it that could actually lead me to greater change. We just try to avoid it and hit ourselves over the head enough to quit doing it. Right? Come on, do you understand that God is opening up portals of revelation of things that we before would never even look at? You know, when we... I'm going to diss on the mentors for a minute. 
when we were at this mentor meeting, I was reading some of these definitions and I, I and different things that we went over. And I would look around the room to see how everyone was responding. And I could see it's clear to me the people who are like, I've got to search that out. I've got to figure that out. And those people are like, oh, no, I can't understand it. I can't understand it. Because they begin to like, I mean, their body language, everything is like backing away. I can't understand that. And see that God wants to change that today. He wants to say that in the heart of a king is if I don't understand it, I'm capable. If I am not doing it, I'm capable. There's something in the way I'm thinking that told me I'm incapable and I'm believing it. Since when comparison magnifies insecurities, it's helpful to address them. Address them. We're not good at this. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're not good at this. But we're going to learn. I'm learnable. Are you learnable? She, she gave us a couple of her instances here. She says, we have to address like feelings of shame, which are not good enough, or feelings of uncertainty. These are the things that come from a comparison that we're actually leaning toward to look to see how we can rearrange some thoughts and some actions, right? To what? To not be like somebody else, but say, well, gosh, you know, they've got a really cool haircut. I mean, where do they go get that haircut? I want to go get that haircut. It's just looking at someone and saying, well, they got really cool fruit. I want some of that fruit. So what can I do? Tell, teach me. What can I do to get that kind of fruit? Not like, I'll never have that. They're, they're the, in the special people category. They're the pretty people, and they got the special stuff. I'm in the pitiful, ugly line. I don't get nothing good. That, that's the two sides of comparison right there. You know, when Lynn gets new shoes, I'm like, hey, send me that link. I'm not like, man, I can never have those. And then I just usually buy them from Mendel, and then she's like, she keeps them in a box, though, like for several months because, you know, we, we're just different. You know, I want to wear them that day. And Mendel's like wants to save those until the day for them to come out. Do you know what I'm saying? Melons? Do you, does he, no, you don't have that? Okay, Cheryl's got that. You got a friend. Address the shame is the one thing she said. Don't dwell or indulge on unhealthy comparison. That's not even what we're talking about. So that means there must be a healthy one. Yes. Who knew? We're not good at this. We're not good at this. We're nervous right now. We're like, oh my gosh, it might lead to sin or something. Don't do unhealthy comparisons. Do you know the difference? That's really the question. Unhealthy downward comparison looks like judging something or someone as less than to feel better about you. Not good. Unhealthy upward comparison is judging yourself harshly in comparison to something or someone you deem as greater. There's an up and a down. None of that's good. Really practical, right? Did you know y'all are doing this all the time? You're acting like you're not, and you've hidden it away. And because you know, because religion said it was bad, and so you hid it away, but you're doing it all the time. Right? Right? Heal the underlying shame. Right? And then the other part was the uncertainty part. She says, so address it. Since comparison increases 
during periods of instability, identifying ways you can bring more stability to your life is the answer. I know it's a little deep. You're going to have to think about that for a minute. So when I feel unsure, I begin to look at what other people got, what other people are doing. I actually think I know how they got it. Oh, well, they're probably at home praying for 17 hours a day. That's why, that's what Teresa's doing. That's why she can come up here and the Holy Spirit speaks through her. It's, that's not true. You made all that up. I got a whole life to live too. I just make myself more aware of him on purpose. But I ain't sitting at home just in my bed praying to Jesus 17 hours a day. See, so whenever I feel unstable, then that's what she's saying. I begin to compare more. Because why? I'm trying to satisfy this scary feeling I'm having inside about why I feel insecure. It is. So then, if I'm going to use comparison for my benefit, I'm going to have to be more stable. Otherwise, I'll use it to judge myself and others. Up or down. And then it says, identify the healthy need, desire, dream, or go that comparison's pointing to. So, you know... Me and some of the girls, we decided we had the COVID body and we were done with that COVID body. How did we get the COVID body? Well, you know, we couldn't go anywhere. We were scared to go anywhere. And then there was ice cream. So <laughs> that, you know, don't go anywhere. And then here's our favorite thing. And then if you have a bunch of friends, I have these friends that all like ice cream equally. I was daughter of Dairyman. We had ice cream every day. And so maybe more than one time a day. I remember I would just go and get me a fudsicle out of the fridge just anytime I wanted. I mean, like when I was a kid, because why? I was old before I used to gain weight. I could eat anything. And then that monster mess happened and everything. Anyway, every, let's blame everything on that. But really, it's just that I eat more calories than I can burn. It's not a brain surgery thing, you know. It's just the reality of what how another system that this is the way my body operates, right? And so it's interesting, whenever you begin to change something, then that's what it's saying, is that there's a healthy desire, healthy dream, healthy thing. Okay, I want to quit doing the COVID lifestyle, and I'm going to do this other lifestyle. Well, but see, everything about that isn't easy. And if you're not careful, you can forget why you don't want the COVID body anymore. <laughs> When you're looking at the ice cream, you're like, in the Brahms commercial, like, now why are we doing this again? I can't, I feel like this would be okay right here. And then tomorrow it would be okay again. And then the next day it would be okay again. Do you know what I'm saying? Number three on the address the uncertainty. This is just my last definition. Create tangible steps and realistic plans towards these things. Again, that's why a mentor will help you. So those are my definitions for the day. Okay. So back to Papa's question over us. Is your wick salty? Let's turn to Matthew 5. He says it. I just repeat it. Matthew 5. Let's just start at the tippy top, shall we? One day Jesus saw a vast crowd. This is a sermon on the mount as we know of it. And people were gathering to hear him. So he went up the slope of a hill and sat down with his followers 
and disciples spread all over the hillside and Jesus began to teach them. I love the footnote in the Passion. It says that it should be noted that this is the Sermon on the Mount or the Torah or the Constitution of the Kingdom of Heaven. Love that term? It says, Jesus begins with giving his followers a superior way to live than the Ten Commandments. Now, lest you forget, God's first desire was for the people to come out of slavery. This is his desire for you too. Whether you know it or not, you're a slave to anything that's not freedom. You're a slave to any mindset that doesn't lead to freedom. You're a slave to it because you're doing actions according to a mindset that are against his way. Right? Is that a better way to say it? So his desire was what? Come out here. Let's huddle up at the mountain. I'm going to come down, crash, boom, bang, and I'm going to be God. I mean, it's like saying, God be little. God be quieter. God, don't be so powerful and magnificent. Be smaller. Be a God that I won't be afraid of and I don't have to change to serve. And he can't. He can't. He can't. He's unchangeable. So guess who's adjusting? You either adjust to his ways or you have less of him in it. Do you understand that? Because when he encounters you, the process, as I've been speaking up, have already started. That's what you said. Jesus, I invite you into my life. Somebody should have told you this if they didn't tell you this. You just entered in the process of maturing, bam, right there that day. You are never going to be the same. I love in, and I think it's in First Peter. Let me see real quick. Hold on. Yeah, it's First Peter somewhere, 17. What chapter am I in? First Peter 1, 17. Excellent. It says, um, As God's obedient children, never again shape your lives by the desires that you followed when you didn't know better. And, you know, the cool part about that statement, it's not what, what I'm going to read, but we know. We know when we're shaping our lives based on another mindset. We know it. We're just resistant because it feels so hard. But see, that's the really crazy part about God's plan is that everything yoked up to Jesus is easy. Everything we did without him was hard. But we act like this is hard. He's like, no, I'm giving you all the power. I'm giving you all the insight. I'm giving you the suggestions. I'm giving you the people. I'm giving you partners. I'm giving you all this stuff. And you're like, ah, it's too hard. Laying in bed's easier. So as obedient children, never again shape your lives by the desires you have that you had when you didn't know better. 15, instead, shape your lives to become like the Holy One who called you. For the scripture says, you are to be holy because I'm holy. Since you call on him as your heavenly father... The impartial judge who judges according to everyone's work, live each day 
with holy awe and reverence throughout your time on earth. Now, what's great about the Passion Guy, he says, believers in Jesus will not be judged for their sins since they happened once and for all when Jesus was crucified to redeem us. We just sang about redemption. See, if you don't believe that right there, you're going to be doing all of this stuff thinking that your sins aren't covered. You live completely different when you're sin aware than you do when you're not sin aware. See, because the cool part of God's plan is that the Holy Spirit lives in you and he'll go, hey, no. And you'll go, you'll go, right. Thanks. Right. We act like we have to be so, I wonder if that's sin to him. I wonder if that's sin to him. I wonder if he thinks that's sin. Is that sin? Is that sin? We're always checking with him. He's like, hey, I'll tell you. So then that gives you permission to live your life with a different purpose than to make sure you're the sin checker. He says, Jesus was crucified to redeem us. We will be judged, however, for our works in order to determine reward. Just live like that. I love it because it says, The Aramaic will be translated, no one will put on a face mask before God. You cannot wear a mask before God right now. Okay, back to Jesus. Let's go back to Jesus. We like Jesus. So what I just said, uh, verse 2, Matthew 5, verse 2. I just said Jesus began to teach them, and I just read that commentary, right? Verse 3, what happiness comes to you When you feel your spiritual poverty. See, we don't even know what that means. Just that happy word. I love the commentary in this. He says it's some fancy Aramaic word. It means enriched, happy, fortunate, delightful, blissful, content, blessed. Our English word blessed can indeed fit here, but it implies way more. Great happiness, prosperity, abundance, goodness, delight. The word bliss captures all of this meaning. It means to have the capacity to enjoy union and communion with God because the meaning of the word goes beyond merely being blessed. It translate, the translation uses different phrases, each of them in the Beatitudes. It says, these verses are with the third pronouns. However, it's not an abstract truth because Jesus spoke it directly to his disciples. That's why it's translated in this person the second person the implication of the verse is this the poor in spirit have only one remedy and that is trusting god the total reliance upon god is the doorway to the kingdom realm that's what he started out with there's no other option there's no other option you're destitute for any other option. The only option is this is the doorway. This is the way. My complete and utter reliance on him. I can't rely on myself at all. I can't rely on others at all. I got to rely on him. It's the doorway. But see, then God sticks you in a spiritual family that you begin to exercise all the process on. Okay, we'll go on. What happiness comes to you when you feel your spiritual poverty? For this 
means for yours is the realm of the kingdom's heaven. What delight comes to you when you wait on the Lord, for you will find what you're looking for. What a blessing comes to you when gentleness lives in you, for you'll inherit the earth. This is the Constitution, so you can read it later more slowly. How enriched you are when you crave righteousness, for you'll be satisfied. And how blessed you are when you demonstrate tender mercy, for tender mercy will be demonstrated to you. And what bliss you experience when your heart is pure, for then your eyes will open to see more and more of God. And how joyful you are when you make peace, for then you'll be recognized as a true child of God. How enriched you are when you're persecuted for doing what's right, then you'll experience the realm of the kingdom. I don't have time to preach on all this, but he's pointing to all of these things that these heart conditions, these heart attitudes will produce in the kingdom realm. Do you get it? So if you have this, you'll see the kingdom. If you have this, you'll da da da, right? That's what he's trying to point. He's trying to point out a contrast. So that would mean those things in the Constitution would be the things we need to develop in our life to experience the things of the kingdom. See, we want to experience all the things of the kingdom, but we don't want to do the heart development in the process to be able to do them. And he says, here's the doorway. If you do this, you'll get this. If you do this, you'll get this. Let's don't do some other random things. Say, well, why didn't he let me see him? Right? How blessed you are when people insult you and persecute you and speaks all kinds of cruel lies about you because of your love for me. So leap for joy. Since your, your heavenly reward is great, for you are being rejected the same way the prophets before you were. Verse 13, here's where I'm coming to. So your lives are like salt among the people. But if you like salt become bland, how can your saltiness be restored? So it sounds like Jesus is asking a question. Doesn't it? It's rhetorical. What does that mean? What does rhetorical mean? What? Yeah. He's... He's just saying a statement, acting like it's a question, because the answer to the question is, is impossible. Salt has an inability to become less salty. Now, see, he's talking to a bunch of agricultural people. Did you know that there's a salt, the covenant of salt is in the Old Testament? Because the, the salt was really important. That's where we get our word salary from. Salt was so valuable. It had such a meaning. I love, I looked up, I, like I said, I probably spent six hours on it. But salt draws out the good flavor, flavors, subtly hidden in food, and preserves what would otherwise spoil, as do those who claim to be children of God. So what, so what he's really saying, he's really saying it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness, right? And so if, if he's asking that question, then he's really pointing to something different. So let me read a couple of things. It says, hang on. It says, can salt lose its saltiness? It's a rhetorical question because salt can't become less salty. True disciples of Jesus cannot lose their saltiness. They are new creations and already completely changed. So when you read that statement before, weren't you like, oh my gosh, like I got to do something. Does anybody know? I got, 
I got to do something to stay salty. I mean, like, I don't even know what that means. But, you know, I could lose it. He's not even asking you that. Isn't that a little bit of freedom at least? So that means if I spent all my time focused on I could lose my saltiness and I just became aware today that wasn't what he was talking about, then what is he talking about? Let's spend as many years focusing on what he was talking about as we did focusing on thinking that we we're going to lose our saltiness. Do you see that when you get a new definition from God, you need to spend some meditation time on it saying, well, what does he really mean now? Because I spent, I did a lot of actions trying to prevent not being salty. It's the truth. You did. And so now let's put a lot of action saying, oh, well, this is solid. I mean, I can read you so much stuff about salt because I read so much stuff about salt. But it's an, it was an important commodity to them. So this was really a valuable thing to them. It's not that valuable to us because we just make up stuff now. You know, we just poof, make salt probably, I don't know, in a petri, petri dish. I don't know. But that, the point of it was this was really valuable. So this perked their attention, right? Let's go back and just read it the rest of the way. So your lives are like salt. They're like, oh, salt. We know salt. There, there was a salt covenant back in Leviticus and Chronicles. I think in Leviticus it said, um, in the ancient world, salt was a valuable substance. It was used for a variety of purposes, to preserve meat, promote healing, seal friendships. See, all we think about it now is that it's just something on Cheetos. I mean, it, it wasn't that way then, Right? It had a completely different value system. So Jesus is using something that had a value system in the Old Testament, and he's trying to translate it to what your life can look like in this covenant. I love it. He said, when covenants were made, people celebrated with fine meals seasoned with salt and other spices. The permanence of salt symbolized the permanence of God's covenant. So it was really crazy because... Even if you're going to bring a sacrifice, you had to salt it. Who got the sacrificial meat? The priests. Wait for it. Let's wait. Did you get it? I'm not going to tell you the answer. See, see, he's he's trying to show us all these these. And these comparisons, he's saying, okay, I know y'all know about the salt covenant, the covenant of salt. It was going on. It was part of the law. Remember, because do you understand that in Matthew, he's trying to say, well, this was not my heart. My heart wasn't all this law. And so he's using comparisons so I can get the picture of what he really intends to do in and through my life. Let's finish reading what he says. He says, but if you, like salt, become bland. How can your saltiness be restored? See, the interesting thing about salt, the only way for it to actually ruin is for it to be combined with another substance that's not like kind. It says flavorless salt is good for nothing and will be thrown out and trampled. I love it says... Salt that has lost its flavor is foolish. It says both the Greek and Aramaic. This is the the passion guy. Use the word that can mean good for nothing or foolish. If salt that has lost its flavor is foolish, 
then salt that keeps its flavor is wise. It says that Jesus equated salt with wisdom. So it says, after speaking of the salt, Jesus speaks of lighting a lamp. It was a common practice in the time of Jesus to put salt on the wick of a lamp to increase its brightness. Is your wick salty? The salt of wisdom will make our light shine even brighter. Is your wick salty? It's saying, is your entire walk with God filled with wisdom? It's a preserver. It's a covenant maker. It means something in the kingdom. It meant something to Jesus. So that's why he says, so your lives light up the world. Do you understand that he's trying to make this analogy that with me in you, Oh, if you could just get this, that we go out into the world, you're the light that everyone's looking for. But if you look and act just like the world, you're just unsalty. Your your wick is not salty. Your light is not shining bright. No, you look no different. That's why there has to be a contrast. That's why you have to work on the things in your process so your contrast to the world gets broader. Your lives light up the world. For how can you hide a city that stands on a hilltop? And who would light a lamp and then hide it in an obscure place? Instead, it's placed where everyone in the house can benefit from its light. Who's doing the placement? It's what I was speaking of from the beginning. God is doing a work in you, a process in you. Because why? He wants to place you where you can light up darkness. You know, there's been this weird thing happening in our little group where people are trying to tell me of things that people who aren't serving God, what they're doing. I'm like, well, of course, they're doing what people that aren't serving God do. They're not serving God. So it's not shocking. But see, I think what's really happening is they're becoming aware of a place of intercession. But the way they've reacted to it in the past is that they just told about it and they were done. Did you know that's happening to you at work? See, if God is wanting us to exercise our authority on the weather, wouldn't he want us to exercise our authority over darkness? And so he would put you in a place where darkness abounds. You either run for cover, and if you're, if you're not good at letting your light shine, then you need to get some salt and put it on your wick, which is what? Wisdom. And so that means that you have some mindsets that allow you to keep the processes that you're doing alive. So, you know, I've been dreaming about, literally dreaming, about all of these instances where 
You know, I read it not too long ago in the alignment book. We're going to be doing the alignment book, I think, here in a couple of weeks. But so get your copy today. <laughs> that was a cool commercial, right? I just, I just walked into that. But where he was saying that he doesn't focus at all on what the sickness is or the infirmity is or nothing. He only focuses on how God loves the person, how he sees the person. I just think that is that is such an important transition that we need to make as a healing community, that we have to transition from being so impressed by how hardness or sickness or something has happened and be more impressed with what God wants to do and how God sees a person. And that is a big, that we're not good at that either. Right? We just barely came into the fact that, well, maybe something should get healed. I mean, right? Like, okay, well, I think God really wants to heal people. And then, then we started going, well, I, didn't, I don't know if I'm called to that. Remember those days? Well, I'm not, I know there's some healers, and I don't know if that's me. Remember, do you remember that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And then we're like, okay, well, maybe I'll go and I'll go, I'll be praying for you. And off we ran, right? Because, you know, we didn't want to actually pray right then. I mean, like, no, like, because then we would have to ask them if they were better. And we know they're not going to be better. So we'll just, I'll be praying for you, right? That was the tap and run, right? And then we were like, okay, well, maybe we'll pray and we'll do that, you know. Can I touch you? You know. Right? I mean, this is just this is process we've been in. Can I touch you? Are you okay if I, if I touch you? Are you okay? You know, trying to get permission from a sick person to get healing, right? Right? But see, the thing of it is, if I'm a light, then when I step, when my wick is salty and I step onto the scene, they're like, oh, I sure hope they ask me to pray, that they can pray for me. I mean, that's what's been happening to us at Des Rim there, but like people are like, Yes, please pray for me. See, you've got to, if you live in a, if you work in an office, you've got to be walking around that office and touching that thing with some oil and be walking around that building seven times to get them walls knocked down. It says, let it shine brightly, so don't hide your light. It's verse 16. I love it. It says, the Aramaic word for light is used as a metaphor for teachings that bring enlightenment and revelation to men's hearts. Light can also represent the presence of God, the light of his countenance. Jesus is the light of God within us. Is your wig salty? How much awareness of Jesus are you where you're at? Like when you see people and they're not acting like you want them to because you got so much judgment towards them, they should just be acting a certain way because they're at work. How much, how much does their actions trump the light in you? That's really the question. See, because I'm telling you, this is a generation that is going to be so awake, they're not going to care anymore that people are offended by God because they're going to have so much fruit because they've done something in the secret place that it is going to illuminate and shine and produce something in people that nobody's going to be going, well, you know, who do you think you are? Or you're in, you're in an occult. We're like, oh, yes, don't say that about me. I might have to do something.
Well, we got Jesus trying to shine out. Well, if Jesus isn't a cult, I guess I'm in the Jesus cult. I mean, who, why, why are, is a single word so scary that we're just having to, we need some, um, we need some miracles to occur so we can prove to people we're not a cult. We need some, we need some numbers around here so we can prove to people, blah, blah, blah. It says, let it shine so brightly before others so that your commendable works shine as a light upon them. And then they, then they, if you're shining so bright with your works, see, let me just help you. If there is one thing in you that you're going to do something nice so somebody will like you or so somebody will approve of you so you'll have a testimony, your motive is already wrong. I just got to do it because he just has to have a place to shine and I know darkness needs him. It has nothing to do with you. If there's one ounce in you that you need somehow to, to prove that you're a Christian or prove that you're a healer or prove that you're a prophet, you're doing it for the wrong motive. And it will not last. God cannot anoint that. That you didn't go through a process. I love it. You know, when God does give us a prophetic word, I mean, we're literally thinking in our minds when we hear it. We're literally thinking of what that's going to look like as if we could know. I love this. It says, it's a little commentary about salt. It says that we are so valuable as our role as disciples. What are disciples? Disciples were teachable people that knew they didn't know nothing and wanted to learn a different way. It says, God uses us to impact the people around us. Whether we are slowing down the moral decay or we're enhancing the spiritual flavor of the world, God has created us to be a positive impact. As followers of Christ, we are called to be different and to live righteous lives. That's just... That's the nature of what Jesus was trying to tell them. In this covenant of salt that he made with them in the Old Testament, he prescribed different ways, but it was an indicator of how valuable something was that he knew he would use it as an analogy in the New Testament. So the reason why that they would salt the meat that they would offer to God because God wanted to care for the priests. He wanted to preserve your that sacrifice that you made to him. He wanted to preserve it for someone to be used later that was ministering to you, and it's the same today. Come on, Mendel. Awesome stuff. Wow. Wow. It is freezing cold up here. 
someone opened a refrigerator door and it's blowing right here. Sorry, sounds a little bit shocking. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, um, anyways, back to the subject matter at hand. Um, so the Holy Spirit reminded me yesterday of a word that I wrote in back in July of 2019. And I knew that I remembered this word and I remember the significance it had to me then. Um, but of course I, I feel like there's something new on it today and I feel like he wants me to read it today. And there were some interesting things that without knowing what Tisa was going to preach on exactly today or what her message was that I knew it, it, you know, it pinged something in this word. And so I've been asking the Holy Spirit how to, you know, exactly what are you saying with this? Like, why did you bring me this word today? And what does that little ping mean? And I'm not entirely sure that I even have it, but maybe by the time I finish reading it, I'll, I'll have it. I think I have a little bit of an idea, but it may be something that's even for each of us to personally kind of search out um, deeper on a, at a later time. So I'm just going to start reading the word and then I'll, I'll tell you what some of my thoughts are on it. So I was writing, this was me writing in, back in 2019. I said that I've felt your touch, talking to Papa, I've felt your touch, all that comes from when our hearts seem to touch, when my soul is wide open and the mere exposure of it to you seems to release new oxygen in the room. I've found the gateway to true freedom, freedom from all that pulls and pushes and drives all this tension. It's found through my simple exposure to you. I've tried so many ways, but nothing suffices or is quite the same as when I simply open my heart to you. Nothing hidden, nothing carefully crafted for your view, nothing self-protected, just full exposure, openness to your view. Could it be there's a missing element found only in this way? Could it be that there's an ingredient for living that can't be found any other way? What if all these emotions were meant as seeds? What if all that comes from simply another day under the sun is waiting for watering from up above? What if our day-to-day -day life is an embryo in the making? Could it be that we are harvesting seeds? that this tension and these struggles and needs and ways we are moved by what we see, these feelings and thoughts could all be seeds simply in need of watering. And Papa said, daughter, son, you've stumbled on to a deep understanding. I created this world, the earth you know, with all you'd need except one thing, me. The universe is not complete without me. This ecosystem you know of life will always be incomplete without me. Science has done its best to discover the cycle of life, of all that grows, how oxygen and light and water is needed for crops to grow. But the cycle of life is so much more than what this earth is able to grow. The process of life is far more than the physical world, world, 
The missing element essential for what I intend to grow is not found in earthly soil or atmosphere. You won't find it on a periodic table. There are building blocks for life far beyond what science knows. I'm going to read that again. There are building blocks for life far beyond what science knows. True life requires an element not listed in scientific manuals. True life requires the element of me. Capital M E. I designed and created you to operate in the true cycle of life. Your experiences and encounters with the world around you are, in fact, seeds. These are the building blocks for heaven to be seen. Every thought, feeling, emotion, every struggle or pain, every joy and delight are seeds. True kingdom life in the making. They wait. They wait for what I bring. They wait for the next step in the cycle of what they were meant to be. Remember, Tisa was talking about process. We're all in a process. And it's not a question of whether or not we're in a process, but how we're doing in that process. He said, each one stirs a life, inside each one stirs a life in waiting, a kingdom creation. They wait to be exposed to the element I bring, the element of me. When your heart is laid open to me, finally they can breathe. Finally they receive what they need. Each one, every thought, every feeling transforms into what it was meant to be, a building block for heaven to be seen. For kingdom creation here on earth, this next level creation is taking place all the time, mostly unseen, but seen or not, each of you are participating in the cycle of life. Remember, we talked about how we're all, all day long, we're planting seeds. It's for one kingdom or the other, but all day long, we're planting seeds. So each one of you are participating in this cycle of life. Much of the tension, the heaviness that you feel is the backlog of these harvested seeds carried within you waiting to be developed. They're waiting for exposure to the element that they need. To what they receive when exposed to me. New life is formed and the weight relieved when you participate in this cycle with me. We can't do our process without him. You're all in a process. We are all in a process. And so many times we try to do it on our own. It's never going to work. We must do the process with him. So he says, bring me your seeds. Expose them to what they need. Flow in the cycle of true life with me. And then I wrote, after getting that download, I wrote, just as natural seeds will fail to grow without water, air, and light, the seeds of our emotions and thoughts must be exposed to him, simply exposed to him. We harvest, we gather, we collect these seeds every day. Whether we know it or not, we are gathering seeds 
and planting seeds, we recently learned. We're gathering and planting seeds. We were designed to operate with him this way. We were designed to produce these seeds of growth, these building blocks for his kingdom on earth. We weigh ourselves down with a backlog of seeds when we refuse to participate in the cycle that he made. We stop the flow, creating bottlenecks in his development process when we don't bring ourselves to him, when we keep to ourselves all that he wants to grow, when we posture ourselves like the Dead Sea instead of the river of life that we were meant to be. So that's the end of the word. There's, there's so many things that tie together today. And like I said, I didn't have any idea. I, I was, the Holy Spirit brought this word back to my mind before I even talked to TC yesterday. And I didn't know she was going to talk about seeds at the beginning or salt or any of that. And so there's, I feel like there's lots of ways that this goes along with, with what she preached on today. And so please, you know, seek it out for yourselves on an even deeper level. But this one part hung me up today and I almost thought, well, maybe I just shouldn't read this last line because it says when we posture ourselves like the dead sea, instead of the river of life, we were meant to be. Now I know the the meaning for that at that time, but I understood the Dead Sea to be was something there's no flow. You know, everything, you just hoard everything. Everything gets is stagnant there. And so I get the original meaning of it, but there's something else about it today because I was reading and the Dead Sea was actually a major source of salt for the Israelites and everyone back then. It was a major source of salt. And I looked it up, and it's actually still one of the saltiest bodies of water on the planet. And so I was trying to figure out how this correlated, because this implication is that we shouldn't posture ourselves like the Dead Sea. And so this is what I've come up with, okay? The question today was, how salty is your wick? Jesus is the light of the world, as Tisa said, and it says in John, you know, Jesus is the light within us. And we used to, they used to put salt on the wicks of the lamps to make the light brighter. So what I'm gathering today is that when we posture ourselves like the Dead Sea is when in, the, in this word and in this analogy is that we are, we're hoarding that, we're keeping it all to ourselves. So the reason the Dead Sea is so salty is because there's no outflow anywhere. So it just, it does build up right there. But back then the people went and took the salt from the Dead Sea and used it for all of these purposes. They put it on their sacrifices, all these different ways, um, on the wicks of their lamps, etc. So the, the salt wasn't valuable when it just stayed in the Dead Sea. The salt was valuable when they took it and did something with it. So I think that that correlates with what this word is saying is that when we keep all of our emotions and our thoughts and we refuse to partner with him, refuse to let him be a part of the process, then we're just storing up all of this, this stuff as we're building up a salt reservoir, but we're not doing anything with it. And so 
we want to, again, it's just another emphasis, take those things, we've got to take those things and put it on the wick of the light of Jesus within us, right? It's the, it's the combination of the saltiness within us from that, that, that buildup of all these seeds we're collecting. When we, when we bring it together with him, the light of Jesus shines brighter through us. Isn't the Holy Spirit fun? So cool. So fun. So cool. So, Papa, we just want to say thank you today. And Holy Spirit, we just love your ways. And we love how you're always leveling us up. You're always bringing us to a new level. So I thank you for what this word brought to us back in 2019. And I thank you even more that you brought it back around to, to enhance, just like salt, to enhance the flavor of this message today and what you're wanting to teach us to do, this new level that you're bringing us into. So thank you that you always want to level us up. And we just love you. We love your ways. We love participating with you. We love the process with you. So we just say thank you for who you are. And I just pray that this message today and this word today and this, this teaching, this wisdom, the saltiness of this wisdom that was shared with us today, that it would just go deep into our own hearts, that it would season us and change us, and that we would taste great to the world around us, that we would make people thirsty for truth around us. So we just say thank you for who you are. We say yes to your ways. We say yes to your plans. And we love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you, Papa. Thank you for being our warrior team. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from One Life OK. For more information, please visit us at onelifeok.com.